This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, the word strike is on the lips of activists in the United States and Europe, where capitalist austerity has shaped the government's response to the coronavirus epidemic. We'll talk with an American activist in Spain who's an expert on rent strikes and a student activist at the University of California who proposes a strike for the people's social welfare. But first, Cooperation Jackson, the black activist and workers cooperative organization headquartered in Jackson, Mississippi, is circulating a call for a general strike and a list of demands that would reorganize the economy to protect working people. The strike would begin on May 1st, May Day. We asked Cooperation Jackson spokesman Kali Akuno, how do you launch a general strike when much of the country is under a general lockdown. We are trying to learn and innovate in this moment like everybody else is. One of the things that we are definitely trying to call for in this moment is, is really to use that in part of the strength and asking people to turn to the digital age, since that's what so much that all of us are having to engage right now, to express their support for this call, to express their support for the demands that they support and the particular demands that they may have you know, given their particular situation in the cities or industries or states that they are in, to go to whatever medium that, that they may be using, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, many of these other platforms that are out there now, and raise their voice of concern, and then to jam to the greatest extent possible the various targets that are being identified, from President Trump to the Congress, you know, both sides, both parties, to all the different corporations that are denying the basic rights to their workers and putting them in, in precarious positions by not providing them with the proper PPE or personal protective equipment for those who don't know what that acronym stands for. So that's one particular way that we are going to be asking folks to engage in this particular process during this particular time, which is kind of a low-hanging fruit. I think the critical piece is can we get the word out and reach enough people? Can the mediums that we have, the social tool mediums, can we reach enough critical people in scope and have them resonate with the message? We think it's a risk, but one I think the situation calls for. So that's one thing. And the other thing is we do know folks are actively, these, a lot of the essential workers, people who are on the front lines already, they are becoming out of necessity more militant themselves fighting for what they need and the protections of what they need. And, and as we see, Michigan, New York in particular, you know, a lot of the essential workers, many of whom are black, you know, who are in the service employee sectors, either doing distribution or transportation or working in these warehouses or grocery stores, many of them are starting to succumb to, to this virus because they haven't been offered the proper protection. But we want to support the many kind of planned and autonomous initiatives that have been sparking up and do our best to build a, a broad, multi-sector, 
multinational, multilingual, multigender united front that uplifts each other's actions, uplifts each other's demands, and then start to build kind of the connective tissue that we think is needed in a time like this and in, in the society going forward to be able to support each other in concrete material ways to make sure we get our needs met, but also to make sure that the society that emerges from this crisis, because it's going to be different. We're not going to come, go back to what was, and that can be either good or bad, depending on who's shaping that future. Hopefully it's us, which is one of the reasons why we kind of went on a limb and called for something like this. You know, not alone, there's other forces doing it, doing it as well. But, but we want to engage both the material struggles that we know are going to take place and engage the millions of people who are also being forced by the situation to stay at home. Everybody's got a role to play. And the other thing, just to go back up, be clear, one another way that we think many folks at home can also engage in this is not shopping for a particular set of days, particularly on May 1st, which, which we're streaming this call for. You're just not doing the shopping that day. You know, the plan ahead, get what you need to the greatest extent possible of what's either available or what your resources will allow, which is also a challenge, and not do any shopping that day. And that will send a clear message to the government, send a clear message to capital. It will also give some support to the different workers on the, on the front lines, particularly in the distribution and, and kind of uh, food service, et cetera, the grocery stores, to give them some coverage and, and leverage to be able to engage in some deeper strike action to send a clear message home that the needs of the moment have to be met and the society is going to have to be different emerging from this. We certainly already see evidence of rent strikes and lots of mm -hmm. strikes that aren't really voluntary, but because people just don't have the money. <laughs> That's right. So part of our piece is objectively a lot of this is already happening. Is anybody going to call for it and try to, to combine all of this motion? You know, I think that's the thing that we have, have been one of many forces, you know, have tried to step in and fill that void and say, hey, let's, all this autonomous motion is, is already in play. Workers are already up, you know, in arms. Millions of people are calling for, you know, rent strikes and objectively, as you said, engaging in them. How do we combine this energy? How do we send a clear message and reorganize ourselves socially? so that we can meet our needs. Because this crisis has demonstrated a lot of the fallacies of, of capitalism. And that's a clear message that we want to bring home. You know, like even on, let's just stick within the housing front. You know, you just see blatant disregard for human rights. Say like in Las Vegas, where there are tons of hotel rooms that are empty, but yet they are making particularly houseless people stay in parking lots where they're just demarcating lines. Uh, to say this is a safe space and a safe distance from each other. When there's tons of rooms that are just sitting there empty. And if you compare that to what's going on in California, where they've requisitioned, you know, a lot of hotels to put homeless people in to make sure that they can try to contain the spread and, and flatline the, the spread. You see the same thing going on uh, in other countries. Toronto, I think, is one of the cities that's leading the way on this front. And this just begs the question we, with all this, extra housing capacity in this society in various different forms. You talk about the number of vacant homes or foreclosed homes that are sitting idle or Airbnb homes that have been taken off the market. And then, you know, all of the uh, additional hotel space or storage space 
that you learn very quickly or it's exposed very quickly that the housing crisis that we have in this country is a manufactured one because it's not like there's a lack of capacity. There's a lack of political will to solve the solution, you know, to solve this particular problem that we have in our society. And this is now forcing that to be fully exposed and folks are going to have some deeper questions as to when this emerges. Are we just going to go back to allowing folks to be, you know, subject to those conditions? Or are we going to do something new? And this catastrophe has shown pretty definitively that the United States really doesn't have a national health care system that's worthy of the name. That's putting it kindly. I mean, when you get to a point where the governor of the Empire State, you know, just reflect on that name, the governor of the Empire State, New York, is now calling out the National Guard to go upstate and seize ventilators from private facilities and other facilities up up north. And this is supposedly the most powerful, the richest society that has ever existed in human history. And it's having to resort to these types of measures. Uh, That just speaks to the real barbarity of, of the system that we live under and the total irrationality of it. And that just doesn't even touch on also just the levels of blatant disregard for human life that's being exhibited from the so-called political leadership in this country. That's not just Trump. You know, what Trump is doing is bad enough, but some of the things that Pelosi has been pulling and and, uh, some of the Democrats have been pulling, hell, even, you know, the wannabe president is still behind the times of reality and saying that he wouldn't be for universal health care. When the situation clearly demonstrates that that is the only way something like this could be managed in a way that's going to avert potentially hundreds of thousands of people dying rather needlessly because the political leadership would rather preserve all the different institutions and mechanisms of capitalism rather than meet human needs. I mean, that's basically what it's come down to. That's why Trump won't pull the card on using the power to requisition businesses to start producing ventilators and masks. They keep saying that the private market, his friends and select companies are going to meet the need. And clearly that hasn't happened. Saying that they were going to set up all these uh, testing stations at Walmarts and Targets and X, Y, and Z. Clearly that hasn't happened. The market, as we all know, or hopefully are learning, the market is not going to do anything that's not profitable. In a situation like this, taking care of people's basic needs is not profitable. So the need for a different system has expressed the, the demand for universal health coverage couldn't be more stark than what's going on right now. And to demonstrate why countries which don't have half the infrastructure of the United States, like Cuba, why they are able to meet human needs in real time. You know, for, this is a sad example so the audience knows. Cuba, anybody going to Cuba right now, when you fly in, you get tested for COVID-19. When you leave, you get tested for COVID-19. We can't produce enough tests in this country to keep pace with the basic demand. Folks are two or three weeks behind on getting their results from the CDC and from other folks who are doing the readings now. So you tell me how in the world can Cuba, which exists under one of the most brutal embargoes, is able to produce these tests and, and test everybody basically in a society 
and the United States can't. In your call, you mentioned disaster capitalism, which is a phenomenon in which capitalists take advantage of disasters or create them in order to achieve their own goals. What do you think the disaster capitalists are thinking about doing with this catastrophe? I mean, if, if this continues to play out the way it is, if the leadership is going to continue to let the market kind of try to figure out the situation, it's going to be extreme price gouging. Which we're starting to see around the country, particularly around the mask. And I'm not just talking about the N95 mask, but damn near any kind of mask. That's already taking place. The ventilator prices are going up because no price controls are being set, which is normally what you do in a time of crisis anywhere. Even that's a standard tune of capitalist economies, you know, uh, in times of crisis throughout the 20th century, including here in, in, in the United States. But I think the piece that we really need to be mindful of is how the corporations are going to use this time to learn how to shift production in a major way and to shift work in terms of work. Because what folks are finding is that, you know, a lot of the service type jobs that are at the core of this present economy. Like those can be done remotely from home to a degree. I mean, some things still need a direct human touch and eye like medicine, but they are making detailed plans on how to transition the workforce. Some of them are and making it clear toward, toward this new kind of digital interface. And with that, all of the, the standard kind of worker protections basically will go out the door because they will just basically start putting everybody on kind of independent contracts so they can get rid of medical overhead. They can get rid of certain types of taxes that, that uh, they would be responsible for and put that complete burden on the worker and shift more towards the utilization of these technologies and various types of further automation and digitization of the economy. So you're talking about a further consolidation of the gig economy. That's right. I mean, you can see that in motion. I mean, there's ways in which they're exploiting the crisis now. Like one example to me, which is appalling and glaring, is the states having to compete with each other and with the federal government for masks, for PPE, and for ventilators through this open kind of market context system that they got set up where the federal government continues to be underbidding folks in the supply is not meeting demand and it cannot meet demand, nor is it actually matching needs, nor could it, because there's no central coordination needed to determine what area needs what the most, who's most impacted, how do we adjust to that, and countless people are dying as a direct result, while these companies are profiteering, exploiting the situation as it presently exists because of the, the misleadership that's in place. But we also need to be looking and start preparing and fighting now, which is one of the reasons why we, we put out this call to start fighting now to make sure the society that emerges from this is not even more barbaric than the one that unleashed this upon us. And you put together a list of demands. What kind of reaction have you gotten from this initial call? You know, on the individual level, there's been a tremendous outpouring of, of support from a lot of individuals. A lot of organizations are assessing the situation, I think, consulting with their memberships, particularly among some of the, the unions. I think this is the time that some motion from them in a radical direction can shake loose. 
We send it out to, you know, a number of the, the key kind of labor uh, activists and almost every union that we could think of uh, for them to take up the call and start struggling, you know, on the shop floor, uh, in the union hall for folks to kind of raise the call. They're kind of widely received, you know, of course, amongst folks in the gig sector. Some of the folks was, that's been uh, taking the lead on waging the struggle around the rent strike. We're, st- we're trying to combine effort. There was a, even an earlier call in our general strike 2020 that we're trying to connect with. And there's been a, a bunch of uh, kind of YouTubers and even some celebrities that have called, put out this call for a general strike. So the sentiment is out there. I think the challenge is, is, is going to be in the next couple of days and weeks. Can we put this all together in a way that can have maximum impact? You know, we're going to have to do this, you know, with using the old slogan, which I think speaks to this moment. We're going to have to do this by, by expressing unity without uniformity. And we're asking for folks to support all the demands that they can support, you know, understanding some people may not be aligned with some. We hope that folks will look at all of what we put together and, and far beyond that, because we tried to be as comprehensive based upon the feedback we were getting from the different forces that we consulted, but we know we didn't include everything and there's more stuff that can be expressed. And this is the time to raise up again, support what you can add on where you can, you know, cause we know there's a lot of local dynamics, particularly in some of these states that have an issue to, to kind of stay at home order, which is basically just allowing the disease to further spread. So folks may need to tackle that in a particular case. We hope they, they uphold that in the, in the form of this context and that we can all give that some support and, and apply the appropriate pressure to get the change that we need. Nothing quite like this has ever occurred, this combination of medical and economic emergency. Do you think this is a pivotal point in time? Absolutely. It may not, like I said before, it could go in either direction. It could take us further down the path of barbarism, some of which I think we're seeing as right-wing forces, like in Hungary, Turkey, Brazil, are using this as a means to consolidate their power, further isolate various forces, be it trans forces, some things I've seen in both Brazil and Hungary. The Roma also in Hungary being targeted from some things I've seen, and those are just some of the, the glaring examples, but that's happening here in the U.S. There's also happening in the U.K. under Boris Johnson's leadership. So the right is exploiting this, this crisis. Capital is exploiting this crisis. It's been good to see this upsurge amongst workers and unemployed and folks, you know, they're struggling. But we got to match what the right is doing with a higher level of mass participation and organization to be able to sustain a struggle that's going to keep them from winning the day on the heels of this crisis. And how can people listening to this broadcast respond to your call? Well, the first thing is just to ask people individually to commit to, you know, no work, no shopping on May 1st. Take that up. Reach out to, you know, your family, your friends, your coworkers, people that you pray with in in whatever form. Get them to take up this call, to, to formally endorse it, to put our calls in their name. Uh, asking everybody in their orbit to take up this call and support and send a clear message to the government and to the forces of capital that things are going to change and that we are going to be the agents of this change. So this is a mass call that's got to go out, and we need everybody to take this up. That was Cooperation Jackson spokesman Kali Akuno.
Peter Gelderloos is an American anarchist activist now living in Spain. He's author of many books and articles, including a recent study of rent strikes throughout history. Gelderloos says strikes are the best response to the capitalist-controlled government's behavior in the epidemic. I think it's a very understandable call. We're facing moments of extreme crisis within a situation that even before the pandemic was marked by extreme precarity, uh, growing amounts and, and intensities of poverty. The, the specifics of a general strike are, are also going to differ from place to place. And so, of course, people have to have to make that decision based on, on their own conditions. Of course, in the States, there are very few labor protections. The labor market has been deregulated to, to a huge degree. And you have corporations like Amazon and Instacart that are trying to profit immensely off of the pandemic and, and the lockdown. And so it's an extremely promising action that so many of their workers, also other Jeff Bezos workers like um, Whole Foods, are going on strike. Uh, it's promising because it's the surest way that those workers have to protect their own health, since obviously the state and their employers are not interested in doing that. And it's also very promising more broadly um, in the U.S. just with I mean, first the, the institutionalization of organized labor going back a century, and then in the last decades, especially since Reagan's the total crushing of organized labor. So when workers can organize themselves uh, when they can go on strike, especially if they do it in a wildcat manner, which means that they maintain complete control over the organization of their own strike and what they're fighting for, in, independent of these big entrenched bureaucracies. That's good news for everybody except the uh, the wealthy. Labor strikes usually are accompanied by picket lines, but this is the age of the lockdown. How do you launch a strike as we have known it under conditions of lockdown, which are very much like the conditions that the cops or the boss would like to impose to break strikes? That's absolutely true. Well, one thing is people who are still forced to go into a physical workspace are, are the ones with, with the best opportunity to communicate and to spread their complaints, spread their demands, to organize. But beyond that, we're really facing a need to communicate by any means necessary so that in the case of a labor strike, we can prevent scabbing, just uh, gaining, really rapidly gaining widespread support for the strike. Here in Spain, what we're focusing on, and which was also a big focus, I understand, in the, in the United States, is the rent strike. And in the case of the rent strike, the lockdown makes it harder to communicate, but it still is easier to communicate with direct neighbors, to knock on doors within your own apartment block or to leave up posters. Friends are communicating uh, balcony to balcony, things of that nature. So, so really, you know, we're dealing with a growing wave of different kinds of strikes. And the rent strike has a different geometry because, well, you know, the picket line, as it were, that would come up when we have to do eviction defense if the landlords and the police try to evict anybody, but that's something that would happen months down the line. So the rent strike is definitely a, uh, a long-term struggle. This really is a unique situation in which the whole nation faces very similar conditions, which generate very similar grievances. Uh, usually when people go on rent strike, well, nobody else in town is on rent strike. And when people go on labor strikes, that's not the general condition. That is all 
the renters know that that $1,200 from the federal government can't pay most people's rent for even one month. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I would go uh, a step further. Uh, of course, I'm originally from the U.S., but for the past 15 years, I've been living in Catalonia in Spain. And the conditions are not only the same or highly similar across the U.S., but throughout large parts of the world. And as far as rent strikes go, uh, to my knowledge, this is currently the, the first international rent strike in world history. It's happening. It's really big in Spain. It's spreading in Great Britain. It's spreading in the U.S., in Canada, also with South America. It's, it's uh, being proposed in some different countries. So there's been, even before the pandemic, just the breakneck speed at which capitalist investment was proceeding led to gentrification pretty much everywhere. Gentrification had become a global phenomenon. People all over the globe were getting priced out of their houses. If you look at some of the big rent strikes in history, people would start rising up, resisting, and going on rent strike when rents got up to like 30 or 40% of their income. And I know that in a lot of cities in the U.S., definitely in a lot of, especially the most touristy cities in Spain, rent for a lot of people makes up 50% of their incomes. So measured, measured in those terms, we're actually being exploited worse than uh, at a lot of uh, moments in history when we had some of the biggest, most famous rent strikes. And since that's happening all over the world, and also the world is, is facing a global crisis, a pandemic, that's created the conditions for the first ever global rent strike in history. So yeah, so in that sense, it's terrible what's happening, but it's also very inspiring that, that people are resisting, people are, are overcoming borders and, and spreading their resistance internationally. Yes, nobody knows how populations will react to crises, especially crises that they've never experienced before. But we have to ask you, do you think that this global crisis is, first of all, a crisis of capitalism and not just medicine. And second of all, do you think it'll radicalize a lot of people who weren't radical before? I think it's definitely a crisis of capitalism. I would say it's really three interlocking crises happening all at once. There's a crisis of democracy in which that sort of fabled middle ground has proven to not exist. And so societies have become increasingly polarized not just in the U.S., but also throughout European parliamentary democracies and beyond. It's become more and more difficult for one party or another to gain the support of enough population to have a, a functioning government. So people have lost a lot of faith in democratic governance. Then there's the ecological crisis, which, of course, is completely connected to industrial capitalism. It's connected to how dominant societies treat the planet and is also causing a great deal of human suffering. It's causing millions of deaths every year, primarily in the global south, in addition to lots of extinctions and all the rest. And then the crisis of capitalism, uh, whereby they, they've just um, created so much wealth that's, that's controlled by an extremely tiny number of people. They have nothing to do with all of this. They have nowhere to invest it. And what happens is just constantly creates bubbles. So actually, even before the pandemic, there was probably going to be a recession or some kind of economic crisis in 2020. But of course, now it's, it's a lot worse. It's a lot heavier. And all of these crises are, are coming together and, and they're also exacerbated by the pandemic. So 
I, I think we'll look at this moment 50 years in the future and, and identify it as a moment when things changed around the world, but that could be for the worse, it could be for the best. It could be the moment when states around the world roll out new updated strategies to maintain control, to maintain this completely unjust distribution of wealth and these, these destructive forms of production, destructive ways of treating the planet, or it could be the moment when, when people finally take back control over our own lives, start to heal the planet, heal our societies, heal from centuries of colonization, exploitation, and destruction. So I, I don't think the crisis is going to radicalize people. I think we can help people radicalize themselves, or we could, we could not do that and let the nationalists spread their racist conspiracy theories, let the um, proponents of some kind of totalitarian government advertise the positive effects of drones and artificial intelligence and total surveillance for dealing with the pandemic. So I really think it, it comes down to us spreading relevant, helpful, liberatory critiques of what's going on. It's up to us to build solidarity. All these initiatives for uh, mutual aid networks have been really, really important. They've shown that uh, it's regular people helping one another in, in a solidaristic, horizontal way that, that can save a lot of lives whereas the police are just enjoying their new powers, harassing people, and, and also actually serving as one of the main disease vectors. So yeah, I don't think it's inevitable one way or the other. But hopefully we can continue all these initiatives that, that we've started and continue spreading criticisms of the racism and incompetence of our rulers and create examples for something better. You were speaking of solidarity. Many would ask, since when have populations in Europe and the United States shown real solidarity with folks in the former colonized world. Yeah, overall, uh, the societies as a whole uh, in the U.S. and Europe certainly have not shown solidarity with folks in the global south with former colonies. Of course, I mean, most former colonies are basically just neo-colonies that are, that are exploited in slightly different ways. But there, I think, have been on a smaller scale examples of social movements, anti-racist, anti-capitalist social movements that do try to take part in, uh, in relationships of solidarity. And so over the last several decades when there have been rebellious movements in the global south, like the Zapatistas, like the Kurdish liberation movement, there have definitely been a large part of the social movements in the global north that have tried to learn from those uh, other struggles, that have tried to support them. Like often what you'll see is that on the whole, you know, everything looks pretty grim, everything looks pretty terrible, but you can, you can find seeds of a better way of doing uh, things, even though at the time they, they appear kind of small. Hopefully with this crisis, more people in the U.S., in Europe will realize just how murderous their governments and really their overall societies and cultures are. And that's been a level of violence that from the perspective of Africa or from the perspective of Latin America has been, has been obvious for centuries, whereas these northern societies, U.S., Europe, Canada, etc., have fooled themselves with masks of civilization and decency and, and all the rest. It's hard to imagine what kind of person who would look at U.S. government and U.S. society right now and think that it's a society that actually cares about human life or solidarity or anything like that. So hopefully, in light of that, more people can, can wake up to the histories of you know, this dominant European or white North American culture. 
You've written lots of books, and especially in this new situation, which may lead to a period of intensified activism. I think one of them's very interesting. It's titled, How Nonviolence Protects the State. How is that? The state, of course, insists that it has a monopoly on the use of violence and reacts very badly when someone intrudes on that monopoly. Yeah, exactly. So the state is meant to keep all of the weapons. And then people, when when we protest, when we resist, we're supposed to do it in a nonviolent way. So it's a double standard. The criticism of nonviolence, I want to underline, is not coming from the opposite pole. It's not a uh, simply an apology for violence. I think, on, on the other hand, we, uh, we should actually question what that term means, since it's a very ambiguous term, and people will say something is violent or not, depending on who carries out the exact same action. So the approach that I promote is the diversity of tactics or a diversity of methods, recognizing that healthy social struggles, they're always heterogeneous. They always include very different people with, with different needs and different possibilities. And that actually our, our revolutionary movements are stronger when we have different methods working together, people using all of the tools in the toolbox. And so there is a great need for a lot of individual tactics that in and of themselves are peaceful. There's a great need for healing. There's a need for forms of mediation, for protest, for communication, for art, and all those other things. But those things are actually more effective when they go hand in hand with combative practices of self-defense, for example, against police violence or self-defense against evictions, uh, when we have the ability to, to take over the streets and create infrastructures or create projects that fulfill our needs rather than the needs of the market. More and more protesters don't seem about taking over anything, and many demonstrations result in the demonstrators kettling themselves or accepting kettling as just the way things are done. Yeah, it's very worrisome when that happens, and I think it's a constant fight. Uh, the state is always going to try to convince us that we need to ask for permission to go out into the street to use public space. I know that also there is there's a, a tension in the U.S. throughout the, the anti-police movement, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, between different viewpoints or different practices, whether people should uh, have permits to make a protest, whether they should make gestures of peace and reconciliation towards the police, or attempts of people to take back their own neighborhoods to kick out the police. So yeah, I mean, obviously I have my own, my own opinion on that, and, and I think it's really unfortunate when, when people police themselves. Well, there is a movement that's gaining traction that demands that police, specifically in black communities, leave and allow communities to police themselves or rather provide security for themselves in ways that don't resemble policing at all. I think that's a really powerful, really important movement, and it's part of a growing network of movements and experiences uh, across the world. For example, in 2006, in Oaxaca, there was a popular rebellion that actually started from a strike of teachers, of school teachers, who went on strike. The police attacked the strikers, and the whole society responded. They kicked the police out from much of the state of Oaxaca in Mexico for about five months. And so during that time, they set up barricades. They were fighting against the police and against the paramilitaries. But in Oaxaca City and in other regions, there were no police. 
And they try to teach us that without the police, folks would just go running around raping and killing. But I, I personally don't know anyone who would even conceive of doing that if there weren't police or if there weren't a threat of punishment. And in fact, the only people who I've ever heard of who really act like that tend to be the police themselves or, or others who have this kind of centralized power. And that was certainly the case in Oaxaca City during five months. All of the killings were carried out by the paramilitaries or the police themselves who were trying to take back the city. So the, the people themselves, they, they took care of each other. Out of the barricades that they created, there were different assemblies that were formed where people could also deal with their own conflicts. And of course, I mean, the U.S., it's a country founded on stolen land uh, and there uh, many, many societies that are still colonized today in North America, native societies, and, and all of them had their own and still have, still practice their own forms of traditional conflict resolution and ensuring the safety of the community. And those work much better, of course, than the, than the U.S. criminal justice system, which is obviously a, a continuation of slavery and, and just a way to, to warehouse people to destroy lives, to destroy communities. That was author and activist Peter Gelderluth speaking from Spain. Graduate student teaching assistants at the University of California have been engaged in a series of protests over wages and working conditions. Semasa Boko is a PhD candidate at the university's Irvine campus. He's using his experience to help launch a strike in response to the epidemic and social crisis. Boko wrote an article on the concept of a social welfare strike. The social welfare strike is sort of an experiment, an attempt to think about how best to go about a strike under crisis conditions where the United States is plunging into a Great Depression and people are really, really scared. People are scared, most especially of losing a job like we have as teaching assistants in the university, in the University of California system at least, where we have guaranteed health care, where our salaries would be consistent for the foreseeable future. And the idea is to create a, a sort of campaign that's based around the sort of principles of striking, which is withholding labor, but with the idea that we are not only making a statement through withholding our labor, but also a sort of ethical imperative or sort of ethical manifesto of sorts where we are explicit about the redirection of that withheld labor or in some cases simply altered labor towards the social welfare of not just ourselves but our students, our undergraduate students, those in our graduate communities who are partners, folks who have elders living with them, and, you know, compromised folks. And these are all people who've been sort of left in the gap by the university's response to this crisis. You seem to be talking about a strike in solidarity with whole groups of people, lots of people, maybe everybody that's affected by this general crisis. But how do you make that solidarity felt by those people that you are in solidarity with? 
Yeah, that's the key question. And I'm not going to lie, I'm new to this organizing stuff. And I also wasn't the originator of this concept of a social welfare strike. Some folks at UC Berkeley came up with it about a few weeks before I wrote that article. But even just seeing that concept opened up my imagination. And I began to fervently explore what this could mean and how this could be done. So one example is here at UC Irvine, some faculty, graduate students, and undergrads had already gotten together almost as soon as these crisis measures were announced, where especially undergrads were being pressured to leave campus very quickly, and there was just a lot of chaos going on. We formed a mutual aid network, which we're trying to maintain and expand at this time, where people can offer up resources that they may have, and people may also request similar resources. It's been a struggle to also realize that in this social welfare strike, if we're really thinking about mutual aid, we cannot let this turn into a sort of donor-driven, charity, purely volunteer sort of enterprise. We also have to think about how do we create sustainable networks? How do we help people to organize around these needs and these issues? Because we should not have to be the ones providing these resources, especially not in the university context that we're in. So the ultimate plan is to sort of find ways to pressure the university to provide many of these things. Have you bounced these ideas around in your activist circles? Oh, yes. Yes. And other schools have picked up the mantle, the idea. And it's interesting because For me, I understand that the university has no conscience. I mean, recently I read an article about how the University of California Office of the President has instructed folks who have supplies of protective equipment in university labs and medical centers not to donate them to hospitals who've been asking for them. And folks had previously been donating those supplies to hospitals and the University of California top brass got wind of this and ordered that to end. So we know this university doesn't have a conscience and that's why we're not really trying to make a moral argument, but we're trying to make, again, a sort of ethical movement where we would have to force the university and our different campuses to say to us in writing, hey, you all can't be out here trying to help folks out. Your job is to help us with continuity of the university and to maintain normal operations during a global pandemic. You've issued a call for all workers to reimagine the conditions in which we labor. So it seems like there is ideology to the call. Oh, yes, certainly. Because however you wish to describe our current socioeconomic system, what's happening right now is that 
many industries are failing right now and they're not being forced. That's a key mistake that many people make. They're not being forced to lay people off, but they are laying people off. While on the other side, the industries that are not laying people off are trying to sort of maintain a sense of normalcy and continuity because the fear in my analysis is that they believe if we figure out that this work regime that we've been subjected to in the past wasn't necessary or certainly is less important right now than tending to the health and well-being of our communities, then we might actually begin those reimaginings of work. And I always think about Frank Wilderson, and he's said when speaking on the role of academics in social movements that the most powerful thing we can do is not to provide solutions quite, but it is to raise the question. And that's what I'm trying to do here. Well, certainly corporations and other institutions always take advantage of emergencies to do that which they wanted to do anyway. We know about disaster capitalism, and this is a disaster. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of dynamic thinking and movement happening here in the University of California among fellow organizers because we're not only in a moment where our traditional notions of protest and resistance to capital and resistance to, in our situation, the university, cannot be done in the same ways which they were in the past, you know, which included occupying buildings or physically taking up space. But we were already in the middle of a movement that was gaining momentum and then was suddenly sort of flushed with a new wave of concerns in the midst of this global crisis. And so we're having to develop new ways of digital activism, of digital picketing, but also, and very importantly, new ways to understand digital intimacy because Social isolation is a feature of the last several decades of neoliberal capital expansion. And, you know, you see this in an idiomatic way with gentrification and the way that it's destroyed communities and displaced them to different areas, made it difficult for cohesive communities to thrive. In the university, the whole nature of graduate school education is made to isolate individuals and to keep them from forming solid and strong community networks. And so we're having to figure out how to create that through the digital realm while also providing for each other's material needs. Tell us what you think digital picketing would look like. Yeah, so folks have been very creative. There's been uh, different drives like email blasting where people will pick an hour or two and all get together 
and either create email templates or write their own personal emails, but to blast certain members of administration at certain campuses or at the office of the president of the University of California. There's also been a lot of work using Zoom, where this past week we developed across the state something called Strike University, where people have been doing different sorts of programming. They've been doing teach-ins over Zoom. I helped facilitate one on this notion of the social welfare strike. Others have been teaching about the history of labor actions, the history of our union, the UAW, and just finding different ways to hopefully disrupt the university, but also to get more people involved to try and still grow the movement and also looking for ways to uh, find ways to subversively make use of digital resources to affect university functions. And again, I'm still new to this, so I don't know the line between totally giving away our new tactics and being open in reporting, but yeah, there's a lot of sort of thinking going in there. Well, some would say, maybe old school folks, that digital protest isn't really much of a protest at all, but a retreat from real physical confrontation with power and physical collaboration with your allies. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is that at this moment, that's 99% of all we have. And especially in this sort of period where everything, sort of an entirely new world is being consolidated right now. And some people, at least, are still under this fantasy that things are going to go back to normal or that the stay-at-home orders that 50 million people in the United States are under right now, and this number will probably expand in the coming weeks, will just go away by the summertime, for example. But we're in this for the long haul. We're in this until at least we get a new vaccine. And so we don't quite know what measures our different forms of government are planning to take in terms of stopping the sorts of physical protests that we've been used to. And we're anticipating that at some point, Increased policing will certainly, certainly be on the table. And in a world where it's difficult to congregate, let's see, for example, a couple months ago, we did have a rally on campus here at UC Irvine. And what ended up happening was they locked down the administrative building and a Black woman alumni who was completely unaffiliated with the rally. She had just come to pick up her transcripts. She was tackled, arrested, and taken to jail. And folks were able to mobilize and go to the jail and stay around the clock for the night and demand her release. Those sorts of things would be much more difficult to do now. So we we want to 
be able to develop different sorts of strategies digitally while also thinking about what we can do physically, but also not being naive as to the changing context we are evolving into. Well, in general on campus, has this emergency energized students and made previously uninvolved students more eager to get involved, or has it had the opposite effect? It's hard exactly to tell. There's certainly a number of students who've been energized to get involved, and I've seen that. But there's also a large climate of fear. So as teaching assistants, we are very much disciplined harshly into a culture of overwork. And so many studies have shown that, whether I look in the Chronicle and read about national studies, and even internally here at UC Irvine, I'm only a second-year PhD. I've already seen several studies that the university and different departments have conducted that say graduate students are stressed and dealing with a plethora of mental health problems. And the problem with this emergency situation is that more labor is being put on us as teaching assistants in order to, quote unquote, help the university with this online transition. And at the same time, many of our professors are not actually giving us less work. They're expecting the same amount of work. And people are scared to say anything. And so they're taking up even more time, more labor, more work relative to the past. And it's just causing some folks to be extremely overwhelmed. In addition to the uncertainty, the anxiety, the worry. So that's definitely an element. But more and more people, I think, are beginning to see higher levels of frustration. Why? Because universities have recently started hiring freezes. And that's going to affect everybody, regardless of if you felt like you were already making enough money to live on your stipend or if you felt that your working conditions were fine. We're watching the job market that was already in dire straits be completely swept away. And most universities have not said anything yet, or honestly, none that I've seen about what's going to happen for graduate students, what's going to happen for our funding packages, what's going to happen for people who can't do their research right now and for a long-term foreseeable future. And we think that this sort of frustration and anxiety is something that we can begin to tap into. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.